here in South Africa. It is dedicated to those individuals and community groups that are supporting both the formal and informal processes that are shaping our cities and our spaces. Today's Talking Transformation podcast guest is Lauren Royston, a seasoned champion of land use tenure rights and communities, presently a senior associate at the Socioeconomic Rights Institute, or also known as SERI. Lauren's a leading authority on domestic housing and planning issues with a strong emphasis on tenure security. Uh, Recently, uh, she's done projects including the Global Land Tool Network on tenure security and the continuum of land rights in Southern Africa. She's been active in a number of non-governmental organizations or NGOs and the public sector for many years, working across the continent, including Mozambique, Malawi, Angola and South Africa. She's been directly involved in the anti-eviction legal action, working on behalf of legal teams that have assisted residents evicted or facing eviction from the Johannesburg inner city. And listeners may have come across the SERI team, that Socioeconomic Research Institute, in support of the Kennedy Road Settlement community in the uh, Dear Mandela documentary that was released in and around 2013. That documentary portrayed very much the complexities and the community dynamics and challenges faced by that informal settlement and the land movement that emerged to improve tenure arrangements and the living conditions in that particular informal settlement. It had a lasting impact on my own understanding of the issues and those challenges faced by communities living in informal settlements. And what Seri have done recently is they've published a series of publications that examine these issues through three informal settlements in a lot more detail. And I'm absolutely delighted that Lauren was kind enough to share some of her time with us to discuss those uh, three or four publications that they've pulled together on those informal settlements. And that's what you're going to hear from her today. Hope you enjoyed the episode and please let us know what your thoughts are via the Twitter platform or through the voice message facility available via the Anchor podcast platform. Enjoy the episode. Apologies to the listeners. The first five minutes or so of the interview with Lauren, uh, for some reason, the uh, sound from her side on the Skype uh, is not as clear as uh, we would have wanted it. So apologies. Uh, Bear with it for the first couple of minutes. Um, You will find that the sound picks up and uh, the rest of the majority of the interview is very clear and audible. Enjoy. So Lauren, many thanks for joining us today. Congratulations to you and the Surrey team uh, for the report and thanks for joining us this morning. Hi Peter, uh, it's a pleasure. Thanks for the invitation. So what were the circumstances that uh, inspired uh, you and the team there at Surrey to undertake the research? Well I think that the important point was the, there was a general policy issue which was that we felt that there was a really good um, upgrading policy instrument, the Upgrading of Informal Settlements Program, in place, but that it was seldom Mm -hmm. being used. Um, And when it was used, it was being applied in very much a kind of greenfield, vacant land kind of way. So we were concerned with how um, an alternative approach could work and what would inform an alternative approach to upgrading. 
And in that respect, we thought, well, we really need to start with what currently exists and how people are organizing life in informal settlements. That should be the starting point for this alternative logic that we were proposing needed to apply. Then there was a second um, uh, important issue, which was the Milani case and the judgment. Um, Milani, the Milani case is about an informal settlement called um, Slovo Park, that's just south of Johannesburg. And in that case, um, we had worked with that community for a number of years, and they had adopted a litigation strategy as an option of last resort, because they had been living in um, Slovo Park um, for a long time, and they tracked 20 years of broken mm. promises. All they wanted was an application to be submitted to the Provincial Department of Human Settlements in Gauteng, and that's what the court ordered. Um, so that was the second major issue that gave impetus to the research. I mean, you talk there of two decades, uh, and some of these informal settlements around the country have been around for many, many years, and I think it's an important aspect that we'll, we'll consider there. It, it, it was interesting in looking at some of your the research um, that you, uh, You've gone and described sort of informality as not, you know, just uh, you go on, you suggest it's about off register and social property arrangements. I mean, is that something that uh, you'd like to just maybe expand on? Yes. Um, what we mean by off register, this is a term that came out of a recent publication that I co authored on called Untitled. And in using the, the word off register, we wanted to find a way to reference the ways that most people um, in South Africa access property. We mm. estimate it's in the region of 60% in untitled. And it's off register because it's not, uh, the relations to land, the tenure relations, are not registered in the deeds registry. So off register is a term simply to capture that. There's a great variety um, of tenure arrangements, which we can perhaps talk a little bit more about when we discuss the tenure theme a bit later. Um, but we were really just trying to find a way of identifying, because it's invisible, these relationships, these tenure relationships, the social form of property is invisible to official systems. And yet, as you say, it's becoming an increasingly prevalent uh, and widespread means of people gaining accommodation in our urban areas. But it's sort of one in four, one in five of our residents uh, seem to be accessing uh, accommodation via these means right now. Yes, it's a really important numerically. Um, that we understand the process that underlies. It's often referred to invasions, but in fact it's land occupation in terms of the legal language and the reasons for why people occupy land, and I think our research sheds some light on that. Well, well, th well thanks for bringing us back to some of the, uh, say, the basics and, and, and the reasoning behind your, your, your research. Let's look, let's look at those three settlements across the country. I think you looked at the Northwest Province, KwaZulu-Natal, and uh, Western Cape. Um, do you want to tell us a bit about the, the, three, some, the, the, the three settlements and some of the characteristics about those? Yeah, sure. So Ratanang is the name of the settlement um, in Clarksdorf, Matasole, in the Northwest Province. And it was formed a long time ago, in 1986. It is um, a long but, time, yeah. Yeah, and it was initially as a result of um, farm dwellers in the area who came to settle on what is what was essentially a small holding. But it, in, but it grew um, uh, significantly through an occupation that took place in 2012. Um, and uh, we worked in the settlement because Siri was approached by the committee that was operating there because they were threatened with an unlawful eviction. 
Um, so that's Ratanung. And then um, Marikana in Philippi Eastern Cape Town. I think a lot of people know about Marikana because of its size. Correct, um, yeah, big one. But, yeah, between April 2013 and August 2014, um, the settlement grew massively um, through an occupation. Um, and when we did the research, we estimated that about 60,000 people were living there um, in about 12,000 households. So it's enormous, the size of a small town. Absolutely. And I think the importance of it is it raises the question, aside from the people living there, it raises a much bigger question, which is what do you do when you can't relocate? Relocate yep. is meant to be an option of last resort in terms of UISP, but Marikana throws up those sorts of questions as well. Because of the court case, um, it also um, uh, identifies the issue of expropriation because resolving the underlying land in all three settlements is really important, privately owned. And then the final one is Sianda in Etiguini. Sianda is the oldest settlement. Um, it was initially occupied in uh, around 1985, very particular origins um, along party political lines at the time. Um, and then one of the major uh, issues um, in Sianda which really shaped people's experiences was the road construction which occurred in the mid-2000s, which led to relocation and displacement, but some a lot of people were left behind. So our research, and that's the term they use, um, our research was with about uh, 13,000 people that um, currently occupy the settlement. Which is quite interesting because you've almost got a, a sliding scale um, in terms of those numbers and between the three. If I look at if I look at that, you've got uh, Ratanang there in the northwest province, plus minus 1,300 people or so. Then Sianda, if I understood correctly, as you say, about 13 and a half thousand, and then Marikana at the you know as the largest of the three at about 60,000. So three three quite different in terms of scale, but the, the the commonality for two of them being that you know we're talking decades. Uh, and uh, you know, decades that they've been uh, in place, correct? That's right. Long time. And what we identified was what people had done to bring order um, and dignity to their lives over a long period of time. And even in Marikana, relatively short, mm, um, mm. Uh, what, how people had organized their lives. <clears throat> so Lauren, I mean, how, how would we characterize life in, in, in these three settlements and, and sort of what was common and what was perhaps unique to each of the three? Okay, well, when we got to the end of the research process, <clears throat> excuse me, we identified the need to do a synthesis report, which was really to look across the, the specifics of the three sites and to try and identify how we could characterize life, because the series is called um, Norms, Practice, Practices and Agency. So we wanted to be able to say something more general. Um, so one thing that we can say is that people exercise considerable agency in all three settlements. But um, the, the context was really important because in all three settlements, we also identified contestation. Contestation was a really important um, finding. And I think that it's really important to reflect on because contestation occurred at a number of different levels. It occurred between councillors and occupiers it occurred um, in internal to settlements around various things um, such as leadership. Um, it occurred between, um, in some places like in Marikana, between the existing residents or occupiers 
and their neighbors. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. It occurred on even a grander scale, such as the way that um, in, in two, but uh, to some extent, the Siander as well, but particularly in Ratanang and Marikana, there was contestation between the right to housing and um, the right to property in the litigation process. Right. Um, so, so contestation is really important and it affected people's daily lives. And by the end of the research process, we really identified um, in our discussions with residents that um, it was a very heavy burden. So as much as there was agency, we also had to look, an organization, we also had to look at the contestation that affected people's lives. We also identified that they were not informal places to live because people organized themselves individually and collectively to secure access to land because the market, the economy, the state were failing. They organized their residential and econo economic land uses. Mm -hmm. They self-provisioned access to the most rudimentary services. They imposed order on an environment that existed without formal recognition. So I think that this was uh, really important. And the other aspect of organization was the way that people organized to defend themselves against eviction, often brutal eviction and often on multiple occasions. I mean, I, I, you know, reading the reports and I mean, the reports do make for uh, very interesting reading. They're very clear and uh, an easy read, if you like, even though the, the content and so forth at times is quite overwhelming and at times depressing. Um, the, th the thought that, you know, things have not changed for so many years. And as you say, people's ability and community's ability to come together and actually make the difference uh, in spite of the best efforts or, or, or varying uh, degrees of efforts by the municipality, I think it comes through very clearly in there. There are four key themes that you considered in turn um, and, and, and are common throughout all the reports. You talked about tenure security, access to basic services, economic life and political space. Maybe we can just take a few minutes to, to consider each of these uh, in turn. Sure. So in the tenure security theme, we were interested in how people were securing access to land in the absence of legally secured tenure and what they were doing in the face of eviction or threats of eviction. And our, in our conclusions, um, comparing the three sites, um, what we identify is that people developed local norms um, to or local rules to um, organize their access um, to land and the way that they held land, and in some cases, the way that they transferred land. Right. Um, so enumeration was one of the most significant land uh, management practices in the settlement. So we look at that across the sites. The other important conclusion that I, that I think is, 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 is necessary to highlight is that we came up um, with you working from the idea that tenure is not just about legal form, because that's often what we think tenure is. Sure. It's about whether people have ownership or whether they're renting and what are the legal forms. We really adopted a different approach, which was to identify locally how tenure worked. So we came up with a, a three distinct categories of tenure that were um, in operation. The first one was the local tenure arrangements, which were lo largely socially configured. Right. And we also identified a statutory protective tenure, which in this case, in the case of urban settlements generally, is about section 26 of the constitution 
and the Pi Act, which prevents, protects people against unlawful eviction and requires that if people would be rendered homeless, that alternative accommodation should be provided. It's made available. Yeah. That, yeah. So there's, people have protection. They need to go to court to claim it if their rights are violated in any way. But that protective, those protective statutory rights exist for unlawful occupiers, and that's the important point. Um, and then the, the third category was what was is registered, registered tenure title, which is what characterized the underlying land. Um, and what we're saying is that these three different types of tenure, these different tenure arrangements coexisted um, on the sites that we explored um, and that we researched and observed. So I think this is really important for upgrading because it means that an intervention needs to begin with an understanding that tenure arrangements are already in place. So I think that's the significance of that finding and, and, and a suggestion about what the policy implications might be. Um, so coexistence is important. Well, I thought it was, I thought it was interesting. The one sort of takeaway uh, quote I have from the report there on tenure security is, quote, you know, understanding the diversity of tenure arrangements, including the way in which the local tenures work in a settlement, is an essential starting point for informal settlement upgrading. So I think you've made the point very well there. Thank you. I mean, in terms of access to basic services, the next the next thing. So what we did was we had a look at how people were surviving um, in terms of access to uh, particularly to water um, and sanitation yeah. and energy. Um, but we looked at, at waste removal and policing. Um, and we found that people um, in, for example, there was, a, there was a typology of responses by municipalities uh, with almost, with no provision. I mean, I can yeah. say no provision in Ratanang. There was a water tanker that occasionally, in a fairly unreliable way, uh, came to the settlement. And that was off the back of some promises made um, during, <coughs> excuse me, during local government elections. Um, but what people were able to do, and it was central to the story at Ratanang, was there was a borehole pump on immediately adjacent to the settlement, uh, which people used to access water. They self-dug pit latrines, and they, there was also, in, in all three settlements, open defecation in surrounding fields mm. when it came to mm. sanitation. So we were really concerned to identify that there were massive personal um, and environmental and public health consequences to um, the lack of provision. Um, and then in um, Marikana, what was really interesting was that the municipality had made an intervention in the provision of very a very limited number of um, chemical toilets and their location was really important because they were located along uh, major access routes they offered no privacy to people sure. so um, people also continued to self-provide and then in Sianda uh, people had access to water and sanitation through communal ablution facilities which was an initiative of the Etegwini municipality that they rolled out in informal settlements and Sianda was one of those. And our research identifies how people experience those. Um, so it was difficult in terms of accessibility, the further you, and it's also uh, a this slope, it's quite a hilly area. So, uh, yeah, so people 
um, experience these in quite different ways. Um, and we identified that one of the critical issues is that municipalities don't want to provide interim basic services until they're secure about, until they know what the future of the settlement is. But we really identify the need for these services um, and that they need to provide at least a basic level of water and sanitation services to everyone living in their jurisdiction. Even um, if people are going to be relocated, there needs to be emergency basic service provision. Um, so yeah, I think that the disproportional impact on women, children and people with disabilities was important to note. And we really, uh, later on in the report, we identify that access to basic services is the minimal intervention and an urgent priority for people living in all three settlements. Well, I mean, I think that makes complete sense. Uh, the one thing that I found quite interesting was, um, if I understood correctly, the uh, in Rat Ratanang, the sort of the, the focal point that that uh, standpipe became for the community, very much a sort of central central point in terms of the infrastructure as well as a sort of gathering space. Did I understand that correctly? That's that's right, because people would queue. It would depend on the pressure. Um, so people would queue at the pump, mm. um, and they would. It became a it became a social space. It was also because it was an open space. Um, there was a, a, some shade close by because there was a a small plantation of blue gum trees. So people would gather there also for right. community meetings. So it performed an important social and community function as well. Fascinating. If we move on to the economic life, the, the that that theme that you looked at. What we identified with economic life, we were interested in how people were surviving, how were they getting by, um, and we, the the one finding was that social grants and remittances were critical to how people were surviving, and that these social grants were um, a form of distributive income, but and and people were using them in innovative ways, so. It wasn't, we tried to overturn that image of dependent people waiting um, for a state handout uh, because people were using these um, social grants and remittances really to survive. Um, we, also, we also looked at the sort of standout um, uh, economic activities, which uh, in particular we looked at spaza shops, and we looked at the factors that made spaza shops um, sustainable. And in most cases, people were really just getting by um, because uh, making a profit depended on your location, um, how accessible you were to wholesalers, uh, the cost of transport to get your, your goods to and from wholesalers. And it also um, depended on who your clientele was. So that was where location came in, because where there was a lot of footfall, spaza shops were doing quite well. Um, but where they were relatively isolated inside inside a settlement, it was it was a little more difficult. Marikana was very interesting in this respect and important for policy implications because of its location close to wholesalers and because of its size. Um, there was um, a, there was some differentiation in how people were making a living in Marikana. And there were people who had a relatively stable income. And this was because they were able to access the wholesalers close by. 
because they were located along Protea Road, where there was a lot of pedestrian traffic, mm. um, and also because they had some important factors, also in Siander, like having access to savings um, or having an, an initial capital injection was really important in Siander and in Marikana. Another factor in Marikana was that people were able to um, employ others and expand their businesses. Um, and so this made for re relative economic stability. Having said that, though, in Marikana, there were a lot of um, spaza shops that weren't in such a stable condition. So the differentiation is important, but it speaks to uh, conditions around relocation, ability to save, um, and so forth. So I think those are really important findings. Another really significant issue that came up was about the relationship between our themes that we used to, to, to conduct the research. So economic life was very dependent on access to basic services. So if you right. had access to electricity, uh, then you were able to have a fridge and keep your goods cold and keep them fresh. The if basics, right? <laughs> the basics. It's really, uh, yeah, it's kind of common sense. Um, so I think that's really important, the link between access to basic services and um, making a living. What, what is really interesting is the idea that um, if, whether we're talking about the formal or informal economy here, those issues of you know location come through very strongly. The whole question of how you have uh, capital uh, funding to get get started, your startup costs and so forth, um, each of those playing itself out in these uh, three spaces. Yes, exactly, and I think that um, uh, in addition to that, the, the the or just building on that, the spatial land use implications are really important because if you're looking. In situ upgrading of a place like Marikana is a daunting prospect, but there are clues. Um, so, for example, Protea Road is, in you know, in the language of planners, is an obvious kind of activity route that would need to be reinforced by any formal planning intervention. And um, so, that the spatial issues I think are also really important. Again, thanks, Lauren, for your reflection on that. And then the fourth and final uh, theme that you looked at was around the political space. Yeah. So we were interested because of the rest of our work and how um, people um, make use of opportunities um, uh, for democratic expression. Um, and so we we adopted the idea of political space and tried to characterize, identify and characterize the different spaces that people were using um, as ways to advance their rights. And the first one that we identified was juridical, which refers to the courts. So people, and we saw this as a political space um, and, and as a form of democratic um, expression. So people were uh, using the courts as a way of advancing their housing rights um, and protecting the gains that they'd made in accessing land. And the stories of the court processes are really important. So I'll, I'll take you briefly through, through what you. happened in each one. So in Ratanang, people employed the, the services of Siri and made use of the provisions in Section 26 around um, unlawful eviction and, and, the, and the PI Act to defend themselves against an unlawful eviction. So then what happened was that a steering committee was established in terms of the emergency housing program in which the parties were to negotiate alternative land. And many of the residents would have preferred to stay and be un upgraded in situ. So this was important because there was some um, uh, 
mobilization around an alternative solution, um, which was to stay. And the way that they, that played out spatially was really important because Ratanang was in what was a former white group area. The alternative land that was identified was some distance away at a place called Alabama. It was just over 10 kilometers away, which in the context right. of the, the size of, of Clarksdorf was quite significant. It was I was going to say, that's, that's quite a significant friend. dislocation, yeah? It was, yeah. And it was across, more or less, across the road from Jubiton, which was is the old sort of group areas, Black Township, um, that served um, Clarksdorf and the surrounding economy. Um, and Alabama was a, a, a relatively new development. The site that was identified was an extension of Alabama. Processes at the steering committee were important, not just from the, the juridical political space perspective, but also for what happened around, this was a formal platform of engagement with the municipality, uh, which was um, not achieved or not a, a, achieved in a sustained way in any of the other sites. So I think really important case to look at. But it was plagued by things like irregular attendance at meetings, meetings that were not called on a regular basis, so momentum was lost, contestation of over who represented who, participation of the contestation over participation of the residents at the existing development in Alabama. And so it went on. Mm. So eventually the steering committee actually collapsed and people after the research was completed, there was a site identified, but people, other, another community occupied that land. And so uh, the latest that I have heard about Ratanang is that people really got fed up with what was happening. They were living without services for so long. There was no provision of basic emergency services while the negotiations were underway, which was one of their requests. So what they did in the end was leave Ratanang and occupy um, a site close to Alabama, one of the other sites. So that tells a particular story that they, were, sure. they weren't evicted, so their housing rights or unlawfully evicted, their housing rights were protected, but the formal process was not actually able to deliver in the end. In Marikana, the issue was also about um, relocation and what was identified, what we identified was, uh, and when uh, initially the, the LRC and then later Siri became involved, was a brutal demolition of people's property, the anti-land invasion unit um, being deployed by the municipality, by the city of Cape Town, and then taking the city, uh, well, taking the case to court. And then it was a question of the private owners who who owned the underlying land and there were several of those so eventually the cases were joined and what the court ordered was that the parties again go and negotiate uh, to reach a solution and should negotiation fail the high court ordered uh, that um, expropriation would need to take place in order to secure the underlying land which was really the first step in the upgrading process and there was recognition that a settlement this size could not be relocated in Sianda, the, the story is a little different because Sianda itself, because of the construction of the freeway, uh, people were relocated uh, because they had to make space for that freeway because they were they had occupied the road reserve. Some people had, some households were on the road reserve. So people were relocated to formal RDP housing projects um, like uh, a settlement called Kul uh, Kulula. And one of the, the sections of Sianda 
was upgraded in situ. So the people, that was called Section A, and it became known as Sianda Interface. Then there were two other parts of Sianda, which were called Sianda B and C, which were not upgraded. Um, and people were still, when we did the research, waiting for some kind of resolution of, of, of an in-situ upgrading approach. The litigation came in in relation to a group of occupiers who were relocated on a temporary basis to a transit camp um, enrichment farm. It was meant to be for a short period of time, a few months, but years later they were still at Richmond Farm. And, in, and so the, the issue there was, the litigation there was about compelling the municipality to uh, relocate them to somewhere permanent, which duly happened to um, Cornubia. Uh, um, and yeah, so there were important lessons uh, from the litigation in all of those uh, three cases. The other political space was a local or settlement space, which really describes the mobilization in an organization internal to the communities. There was some kind of committee in all of them um, with changes over time. So Sianda was very, very important because we were able to track over a period of time what informed leadership and committee structures in Sianda. And initially, it was very politicized because it was an um, Encarta Freedom Party-led occupation and people needed to affiliate with the IFP. It was right. about 1986, in the late 80s, um, in order to occupy. And people did um, because they needed access to land. Some people really did, but other people concealed other affiliations in order to, to maintain a foothold in the settlement. And then there was a process of change and a sort of promise of, of democracy in the early in the early period of um, of our of our democracy, and so a leadership changed and it was it was elected and nominated in mass meetings, so in a more open, transparent and democratic way that had been the case previously, and then most recently, um, affiliation firstly with FedUp and then with Abathlali, which is the current status and the committee is presently a, a local branch of Abathlali. So right. that's a really important process to track, I think, for how it reveals what people do to organize internally, but also to seek affiliation and association that will improve their chances of visibility and representation and also access to services. In Marikana, people organized in, in different parts of Marikana and in sections. Um, or blocks, and that organization was also reflected spatially in how the settlement was managed. And that was the case in, in all of the settlements. There was a, a kind of political mobilization locally, in, but it had a spatial component that was reflected in how representation worked locally in the settlements and offers a spatial dimension to how upgrading could occur. One of the most important findings in political space was that people were not struggling and organizing for access to land and basic services. Their struggle was as much about material gains as it was about something non-material but equally important to the people we spoke to, which was a sense of belonging and recognition that we are here, we belong here, this is our place. So that was very much what informed uh, political political space in all three settlements. And then engagement with the municipality and with formal channels, like ward committees and ward structures, people used those channels to the extent that they could, 
and that they were useful. They didn't shut them off and they made every effort they could to engage with the municipality, either through the ward structures or directly with officials. So that's the kind of story of, of, political, uh, of political space. Different forms, different mechanisms, protest stakeholder forums, ward committee participation, and the importance of belonging and recognition as much as technical material uh, benefits. I mean, I think in going into that space, you've very clearly identified some of the challenges, the complexities, the personalities, the political affiliations, that whole question of identity, uh, neighborhood uh, formation. I mean, yeah, it's very clear. It's, it's, it's a massive challenge. It is a massive challenge and we're upgrading to, to come. Upgrading interventions themselves have, have an impact um, on those processes and on political space in the settlement. So I think that's really important. And I think a lot of officials know this, but it is complex terrain. But I think that the particip participative process envisaged in the informal settlement upgrading process does offer a framework within which to operate. We think it's a mistake to assume that you need to set up a, a new formation. You really need to understand what the existing dynamics are if you're going to have any kind of cohesive and representative process. And these are not straightforward processes. Sure. But what we've learned from Slovo Park, which was the Milani case I mentioned earlier, um, in the way that they've organized, is that if there are contestations, and there are around leadership, because as soon as there's the prospect of something happening, whether it's litigation, electrification, as was the case in Slovo Park, you do find that there are other interests that emerge. They may yeah. have been there all along, but suddenly they become more visible. And it's really important for the, the leadership, as we've learned from Slovo Park, to put that to the community, to test their representation, to make it an open process, to have the municipality there as an observer. So I think there are ways of dealing with it, but does does require strong local organisation. Lauren, just before you start moving in towards some of the, the thinking around the recommendations that are going to inform your policy briefs that will follow the publication of these four reports, do you want to just touch on one element around that the concept of, in the participation space of invited versus invented spaces? I, th I found that a very interesting concept there. Okay, so, I mean, as you know, this is not, this is not our concept. And I know that a lot of NGOs have used it as a way of reflecting on how um, people they're working with, the structures they're working with, are engaging with the state. So really, it was um, a way of characterizing different kinds of engagement. Um, and it's because informal settlements are often excluded from formal channels of participation, the invited spaces. Having said that, there is exclusion that takes place. But uh, the ward com committee participation as a formal means of engaging the state uh, was, in, was in existence in all three settlements. So that was never abandoned. It was mm. more a case of also using other channels to engage the state outside of official avenues. And these are, these are called invented spaces. Uh, so protest is one of those, um, as an example. Right. But then what was interesting in Rattanang was that the steering committee was in some respects both because it was invented to the extent that it came out of the actions that the residents had taken themselves to protect uh, their, their occupation against unlawful eviction. But it was an invited space in the sense that it was 
in the boardroom of the municipality. And so that makes for quite an interesting reflection, I think. No, th again, thanks for indulging me in that. As I found it quite an interesting take on point. So if we move towards the genesis of your policy framework recommendations, and as I say, that which will f ultimately be turned into some policy briefs by SERI, maybe some reflections on that from your side. What we identified as the starting point, unsurprisingly, uh, I suspect, because of our emphasis on understanding existing practices, our first conclusion in this phase of research is about recognition. So it's recognizing the existing norms and practices, whether it's around organization, whether it's around tenure security, or whether it's around access to services and economic life. So understand, for example, the, the multiple existing tenure arrangements in a settlement as a starting point, um, which we mentioned earlier. Um, identify the clue, we make some practical application mm. of this. Mm. I think recognition is a principle and then we apply it in some practical ways. One of those practical ways is identify the clues offered by local land use management practices. So, for example, we look at how in all three settlements there's a, an open space or a social or community, maybe even institutional kind of land use to try and look for the, 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 the language of the official system. And that offers clues because of where it's located and how people use it of something that should be retained. Similarly, with major access routes, uh, whether they, they're roads or, or, or pathways uh, or blocks that people have identified and organized themselves in, these all offer uh, clues for local land use management practices. Also, where the location of economic activity is, I think, is very important, and I mentioned that in my talk. Absolutely. And then another example of applying the recognition principle would be to um, look at, we, we came up with a topology of municipal responses to service provision. So we looked at what currently exists and we came up with a kind of continuum of a very, very uh, little provision through to interim services. So I think that uh, what we've tried to say is that this is a starting point and we'll build um, in all four themes, uh, we'll build on these to take them forward in our policy briefs, which will focus generally on informal settlement upgrading, but specifically on these different themes using our, our preliminary directions as a starting point. Um, so then we also looked at what people are prioritizing themselves. And aside from securing their residential status, which basically is about, you know, refers to tenure security, mm -hmm. it refers to recognition uh, that we are here, that we are here to stay, which is what we titled the final report. I think that people were very clear so, so the residential status in its most fundamental form is security against eviction. But right. obviously that needs to be built upon in terms of recognition of occupation. And one of the recommendations we make is about land records. Uh, so enumeration is really important because it produces evidence and this is what makes people feel mm -hmm. more secure. So build on that. Start looking at how these uh, occupation rights can be recorded. Then the other priority is the provision of basic services. And I think I've spoken to the health, environmental Absolutely. and other issues already. And that is, is, is also linked to, uh, that's about improving quality of life, opening up opportunities for making a living. But then the other priority is improved policing. And that's really important for people's uh, sense of security. 
So effective visible policing was another really important priority. So those are, in essence, the three most important priorities. Uh, safety in terms of policing, basic services, and tenure security. But then we also identified what I mentioned earlier, which is about attending to non-material needs, questions of recognition and of belonging. And I think there's two important points to make in this regard. I think we can see in this finding across the sites some direction for an urban land reform program, because I think urban land reform brings with it the prospect of recognizing the history of dispossession, recognizing why occupations take place um, to begin with, and um, providing a recognition and dignity to people through sort of the land question. Um, the other aspect of, 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 non, of how to deal with the importance of non-material needs and belonging is about process. It's about how people are engaged with, how participative processes take place. And this was one of another really important finding in political space, is that it's very important to build relationships. And it's a social sort of process finding, but it cannot be underestimated in terms of what we found in all three settlements. It's about building relationships. It's about setting up processes that deal with people with dignity. And this was absent um, in all three cases. Um, and that, that, so that brings, us, brings me to one of the um, final findings, which is build constructive relationships with residents. Because the state isn't absent. In none of these settlements is the state absent. That comes um, through very clearly. Yeah. 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 So I think in summary, those are the main uh, directions that we offer for policy and implementation. And as I said, as you've mentioned, thank you, we'll be taking this up in a, in a, in a future, well, in the next phase of work when we develop a series of policy briefs. Well, Lauren, I mean, I think that's a, that's a, a, a very comprehensive re reflection on the work that you've done. My question would really be, where, where to next? Um, who, who are you going to be targeting in terms of uh, the papers? Are you going to be hitting the National Department of Human Settlements? Is it more of a question with uh, taking it to the provincial or municipal level and the communities across the, the country? What's your, what's your thought about where to next in terms of getting the message out there and uh, using your advocacy and agency to, to, to influence the, the position going forward? Well, the first thing is, is making the findings public through launch and dissemination of the reports and the main findings. There are, there are um, paper copies available, but they're all available in PDF format on our website. And so we had a launch in Johannesburg. We went to um, Cape Town, to Kailitsha, where we launched the, the, the research as a whole, but we focused on um, Marikana in particular. And um, uh, we'll do a, a launch, I think it's going to be on the 6th of September, I'm not sure, but we're going to do, I can't quite recall, sorry, but there's no an early, a, late, a late August or an early September launch in Eteguini in Sianda. So the starting point really is to go back to the communities. Uh, we did, a, we obviously engaged very closely with them, did verification and so forth. But I think um, what's very important is that in the, um, for example, in the Marikana launch, uh, we also attached a second day to the launch, which was a community exchange. So uh, several informal settlement communities in Kailitsha and Marikana and Slova Park from Gauteng spent a day together looking at strategies, uh, how they can learn from each other and what they can do. Um, and so that's important. In Durban, we will be partnering with Abathlali, which was the organization we part 
partnered with in undertaking the research. The Abifali, um, uh, field workers were with us in the research process in right. Tanda. And that's another important uh, process because we hope that it will, will strengthen um, Abaklali in their engagement with the state around informal settlement upgrading. So in overview, my first, uh, the first response is that it's the community advocacy that I think is an important starting point. But then there's also policy advocacy. So in respect of, of policy advocacy, we have in the Johannesburg launch, we had a number of Johannesburg officials attend the launch, national officials, um, provincial officials. So that's a starting point. Great but stuff. what we plan to do is to use the process of developing the policy briefs to work with uh, policymakers and decision makers prior to and in the process of developing the policy briefs. Um, so I think that's a very important part of the how question and, the, and what next question. So I think you, you, you've made the, the point that the, the reports are available on the website and we'll make sure that there are links uh, through our Twitter feed and through the Talking Transformation podcast uh, platforms. So we'll, we'll we'll do our best to try and get it out from our side. Where can listeners find out more over and above the website uh, and uh, from Siri's side, Lauren? Well, they can they can contact Siri directly. You'll find our email addresses um, on on the website, and we're very happy to engage. Uh, with people who want to find out more about the research and the implications. Um, so yes, please do do that. And Peter, thank you for the opportunity. I think it's a really important platform. Um, and we do hope that it generates um, some interest, some feedback, um, and some further engagement, because that would be very much part of our advocacy strategy. So this is an important space for us, and we hope that we can continue communicating with people about the research as a result of this. So thank you very much. No, thank you to you, Lauren, for giving your time on a on an early Monday morning to spend some time with us, explain the amazing work that you've done. We really do wish you the very best with it. Regards to all of you and the team up there in Johannesburg. And good luck. We look forward to hearing more from Seri in the future with the work that you're doing and the communities that you're trying to uh, support and advance. All the very best, Lauren. Thank, thank you. you. Thanks so much, Peter. Get involved, get informed, and most importantly, get subscribed. You can find us on our Twitter feed at TalkingTransfo and the number one. That's TalkingTransfo1. Talking Transformations music, kindly supplied by Tribal Need. Find them at tribalneed.com.